Hello, welcome to the um, Rethink Energy podcast with me, Peter White, and the editor, Harry Morgan, uh, analysts, uh, Andrews Montanar, and uh, our ever-present Simon Thompson. Hello. We're discussing the issue of July 22nd. I think we've got to talk about carbon trading, and we've got to talk about the EU's carbon border tax. First and foremost, we've, we've done a, a story on China's carbon trading, which Andres has done. And uh, Harry's done something on the uh, carbon border, border tax. And I think we've got a very clear position on where we are. Harry, you want to kick that off? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a lot of the things we're talking about this week in the issue are centred around the EU's roadmap to reduce emissions by 55% by 2030. The carbon border tax uh, mechanism that they've implemented through that is probably the most I wouldn't say surprising thing, but it's probably the most progressive thing sort of moving forward. It's definitely something that we haven't seen. We've seen it implemented some, to some extent in markets like California for electricity, but certainly not on the scale we've seen before. So the carbon border adjustment mechanism that the EU is proposing essentially means that the importers of goods like steel, fertilizer, electricity will pay basically the same amount. They'll have to pay the same amount for the carbon emissions that they are that are sort of accounting for as they would be paying within the EU's sort of regional system. So they'll be, it'll be calculated based on the emissions reported by the producers, and then uh, they will have to pay to actually import that themselves. And that'll be based on the, the sort of weekly average price of the European emission trading uh, scheme. Um, obviously, the aim of that is to limit sort of carbon leakage as well. It'll mean that uh, firms that are fairly emission heavy in within Europe won't have uh, as much of an incentive to to move elsewhere because they'll obviously lose those markets and they won't be able to sell, just sort of keep, keep the same customers on board. I think leakage is a bit of a, a, a kind of um, fake uh, discussion, really. I think there are uh, various rules about being a good European and how much stuff you build in Europe. There are uh, tariffs in existence already for people that are not good Europeans. All of the large European manufacturers, for instance, the German car makers, are perfectly aware that they have a balance, a sort of global balance of where they build stuff um, to keep in check, and it's got to be pro-European. And I think if they ever attempted to change that, um, they'd suffer under the existing rules, never mind the border tax as well. But uh, I mean, I, I think that's the idea that anyone was going to take all their factories and move them out of Europe, but still become a big European supplier. I think that's that was never going to happen in the first place. So one of the things we have seen already is these car makers within Europe uh, complaining somewhat. I think they've been very much proponents of, of free trade in the sense that they don't want to see uh, their margins reduced. I think they think that they, um, they'll thrive more on a through their, through their own decarbonisation initiatives, which, as we've seen historically, simply just isn't really the case. Um, but yeah, they've, they have been quite outspoken about it being unfairly punitive when they're not, they don't believe that they're at a time where they can decarbonise instantly, even though they probably can. I think one of the, instead of potentially carbon leakage... Yeah, but even that, even that was an idea. Oh, we don't believe we can decarbonise. And then General Motors makes an announcement, and Ford makes an announcement, and then suddenly, oh, we can decarbonise. And then the government makes an announcement, like in Germany it'll be 2040, in England it'll be 2035, you won't be able to sell ice cuts, and suddenly they can. It's it's just lethargy. How, how are you going to police this? There, there must be loads of loopholes. Yeah, so this is going to be something that's really interesting to watch, and there's a few things to sort of look out for, I think. So one of the things is, obviously, people reporting their emissions sort of in a substandard way. The EU's plan to tackle that at the moment is that they're going to, when they can't sort of verify the emissions, they're going to assume that 
the emissions from the uh, production are at uh, sort of the equivalent of the 10% worst producers within Europe. So they're going to just sort of assume it's sort of among sort of worst plants uh, that you'd be getting within the European system itself. The other thing to really look out for, and I think there's there's not really anything in place yet to, to do with this, is refill shuffling. So that would be manufacturers in China having uh, sending cleaner products to Europe and then sending their dirty product, uh, products to elsewhere in the world, probably Southeast Asia, where um, obviously there's less regulation. The problem is, of course, that in energy, if, if that happens, it means that they're not cleaning up their act at home, really. They're, they're only, or they're cleaning up slower than you would like. So I don't think they can police that, can they? It will have to come from sort of heavy assessment from European uh, organisations of these companies, um, which is difficult within its own right. The, I think there has to be some sort of international standard really implemented uh, or some sort of body created to actually assess, to audit the carbon impact of these companies. Now you're talking. You see, that's where this all leads. If you have a carbon border tax, someone's got to measure it. If someone's got to measure it, they've got to be like the arms investigators. You know, you send them in, do that? Do they have atomic bombs? You know, you, you, they've got to be free access and they've got to be independent. It's a thin end of the wedge for, for the heavy polluters who will complain right now. But once this is in operation, it starts. there starts to be no place to hide. Yeah, I think that's especially the case when more and more uh, people take on these carbon pricing mechanisms. And I think obviously we've seen China take on theirs this week. I, I honestly astounds me still that the US hasn't implemented one. I think it's probably the big one of the most outrageous things in terms of the energy transition is the fact that the US is proposing its own carbon border tax, potentially, without having a carbon. <laughs> I think it's, it's honestly one of the most. Yeah, well, it's OK if we pollute, but not if you do. You're an importer. The whole issue, American oil companies say that they're behind having a carbon tax because they know that the Biden administration, as it's currently shaped, wouldn't have the power to put that through. So perhaps I should close off the carbon market stuff by describing China's a bit. Yeah, let's see where they're going to come in. So they officially launched it finally on the national scale on uh, the 16th. Apparently, they're going to issue 4 billion tonnes worth of carbon allowances. And annually, China's emissions were 14.4 billion in 2020. So that's already a, a third or so. And then they're going to increase that to 8 or 10 billion tonnes when they include petrochemicals, building materials, uh, steel making, paper, domestic aviation, that kind of thing. Is there a date uh, for that? I don't think there is. I didn't see one. No. But Next five-year plan. Next five-year plan. And, and this makes it automatically the biggest trade carbon trading market in the world. So, well, I, I saw the claims for that. I how how many tons does the EU's cover? Yeah, so so the EU's cap is around sort of it's just shy two billion tons of CO two. Uh, at least it was for twenty twenty, but that's now falling at around four point four percent a year. So that means the China carbon market is actually several times larger, but that's measured by by tons of emissions. It, it's still smaller in terms of the money involved because China's yeah. carbon price is about a tenth, I think, or maybe more than a tenth, because yeah. I think it used to be like five dollars. Maybe it still is five dollars per ton, but it, it's it's definitely going to go up. I think. It might not necessarily go up by much in 10 years, but then China is a bit unique in that it's re it still hasn't reached peak emissions. So it's going to go from peak emissions to zero emissions in 30 years, probably less than 30 years in practice. And that will involve a, a very rapidly rising carbon price. I think if you took a, a, a graph of the carbon price in Europe and, uh, and you, you then scaled it up to be China-sized, 
that's probably the rate at which it's it's going to increase. Uh, initially, at first, while well, people don't believe it, can't get used to it, you know, and then as, as the, the cap reduces in size, um, more and more people are scrabbling for it, and then the price starts to, to drive up. I mean, I imagine four or five years of it being quite stable, and then it starts to accelerate quite aggressively. Um, so it's good. We'll keep an eye on that market. Um, so I looked at something on... Um, you know, as, I, as I'm quite fond of doing in, in, in electric vehicles. And in our original model for electric vehicles contained in uh, Look Back in Anger a report, which you can still buy on our website, we kind of forecast uh, electric vehicles through to um, 2050 and had them at 1.5 billion. And, and this is a number that is alien to any other forecaster. Uh, the closest anyone's got is the revamped numbers from the IEA, uh, which come close, but still fall short of our numbers. And in Europe, we really only looked at the large economies who actually manufacture cars. And we really looked at, um, and, and what you found in a lot of their strategies was, yeah, we're going to hit the target for delivering ICE vehicles in Germany by 2040. We're going to hit the UK target by 2035. We're going to hit a target of selling stuff in Norway by 2025. But we're still going to sell the Spanish and the Portuguese ICE vehicles. And that was a fantasy. And as soon as the EU steps in and says, across the board, we're planning to ban ICE vehicles from in new cars from 2035, which was what was announced as part of the Fit for 55 uh, announcement last week. As soon as they've done that, all of those manufacturers can't sit, you know, say, oh, we'll just sell more, more cars in countries that don't have a ban. They've got to say, this is likely, you know, Parliament hasn't, hasn't sanctioned it yet, but they will, not until October. And in the October-December timeframe, and perhaps January, there'll be more announcements on going even faster if they're Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes. All of those companies will be going faster because it's an opportunity. They're forced to do it. American companies can still be laggards in other parts of the world, depending on the distribution of their, their car sales. You know, Ford owns many companies and many brands. Um, in Europe, they've been very proactive on EVs. In America, they've started to be, but they are still somewhat behind in terms of the volumes of EVs that they're planning in the next 10 years. And so they can continue to be laggards and uh, and America will, uh, and European manufacturers will be forced to accelerate. Anyway, all we did was do the numbers. You say, you've got to get to 100% ICE, uh, non-ICE vehicles, EV vehicles, plug-ins, by 2035 what would that do to the increase in numbers of vehicles sold purely in uh, purely in europe now remember these companies if they're only making evs sell across the world so that there will be another effect across the world but in europe that adds 58 million more evs if you just take you know let's say that, that they've got 20 percent of their cars are, big, are evs today it's got to be 100 and if you evenly put a few percentage points every year until you hit 100 in 2035 that gives you a very de defined line and that's not how fast they're going to go some will go a lot faster than that a minimum additional 58 million extra EVs in Europe by 2035. So if that law is passed in October by the European Parliament, that's going to happen. And the reverberations around the world upon that law being passed is if you're an American company, you're a Japanese company, you're, you're a, 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 a Korean company making cars and you sell them in Europe, you just, you, you've, just, you've got to up your uh, ambition for electric vehicles. It, they're still very expensive to buy, though. 
and will be for for a number three of years. Three more years. For three more years. Have you not? So the, the whole thing about uh, Tesla is, yeah, we'd like to just make a big profit by selling big, expensive, fifty thousand pound cars, but we're going to introduce one in three years for for twenty five thousand dollars. The other the other thing that's that's really driving this as well is that you've got um you've got actual engine standards that are coming in within Europe. So I think it's called Euro Seven that's coming in in twenty twenty five which will mean that petrol and diesel vehicles have to reduce emissions by so much that the R&D and the technology that we require to do that will actually mean that for these car makers, it'll actually be more profitable to make it and sell an electric vehicle than it will be to sell a petrol vehicle. And that's that'll be from the offset in 2025. Uh, Ford's centre of excellence for those engines in Europe was in Wales and they closed the factory down. You know, they can't unclose it because they're going to meet these standards. They're going to ignore these standards and just stop selling ice vehicles <laughs> you know it's fairly straightforward and their board will have to sit once this is passed as a law and say okay how are we going to make more uh, evs than we have told the world and how we turn this to our advantage so come january february march there'll be a new wave of announcements saying we're going even faster from every manufacturer in the world it, it also it won't be soon until we start seeing consumers realize that the long-term reality is you're going to have to have an electric vehicle, which means that while these subsidies still exist, these consumer-side subsidies still exist, people are literally just going to flock to buy electric vehicles ahead of the deadline. Absolutely. But but there's, it's better than that. You can buy a subscription from Volvo today. A subscription is, you know, you pay £300 a month, you've got an EV tomorrow. And they wrap in your uh, your your discount, and and after the discounts are gone, they'll probably still hit that number because the pro- the actual price of making them will come down. Um, you they are affordable today, on, on as long as long as you've got the right financial way of of uh, of spreading the cost. Because once you plug them in, someone says, oh, "I've got a mild hybrid, and I, I don't use anything like much petrol. Two hundred pounds a month to to do all my driving." And then someone with an EV says, two hundred pounds. Oh, I use electricity. It's forty pounds for me." And, and suddenly everyone's going to be aware of that fact. Right, next story. Was it the heat thing? Um, the uh, the heat storage in Finland. Yeah, no. So it was it was Andreas's geothermal piece for uh, geothermal. Hi, how can you store water at 160 degrees centigrade? It takes pressure. So they, they do it at between 50 and 100 metres depth. And when I say they, I mean this Finnish utility that's announced a 90 gigawatt hour uh, project just north of Helsinki. At that depth of at least 50 metres, you have some you have some water in the surrounding bedrock and that provides some pressure. So so water doesn't boil if you put it under pressure or it, it requires a higher temperature to boil. So that's why they're able to store it at that at 140 uh, as a liquid and of course that means that they can uh, store more energy per cubic meter and the biggest cost when you're trying to excavate a 90 gigawatt hour uh, energy storage cavern is probably i would assume is, is just excavating it but that part that's just 50 to 100 meters is just the hot water storage okay. there is if they have a geothermal thermal element which i think they probably will they're going to use lots of things like waste heat, solar heat, including from thermal panels, uh, wind power, um, that kind of thing. But um, the the geothermal element will indeed be drilled at least, I think, two kilometres or maybe maybe it was two miles because Finland doesn't have any geothermal yet because its geology is just not very it's just not suitable. But as we as we discussed in that piece, I think it was last week, 
with the Chinese efforts. If you if you drill down far enough, you always get some heat eventually. I think they're thinking of GA drillings, uh, drilling approach. And shall I just go on to discuss this other company, GA Drilling, and, it, and its potential for yeah. for drilling anywhere? So, you know, like we said in last week's story, there's this potential for enhanced geothermal systems from three kilometers to 10 kilometers. And I said in that one that, well, only a deposit up to 5.5 kilometers is going to be uh, financially viable. So you still have to do it in certain locations. You don't want to be drilling 10 kilometers. It's possible, though, that GA drilling might break that. I was just looking at their technology, and I think it's it's not actually a drill. It doesn't rotate. It's like a uh, it's a plasma pulse sort of thing, which I don't really understand at all. But it's it's basically a plasma arc that produces a lot of it melts a hole. Mm, I think so. Like it produces a lot of heat, a lot of pressure, and they even even according to their website, they actually say, oh, by the way, this is worse than a normal drill for going through sediment or, or soft rock, but it's just so it's so good for hard rocks. So it really is uh, something different from normal drilling. Uh, and they say that uh, the cost per, per, per kilometer doesn't really change depending on how deep you are. I think um, there is a, a basis here for, I mean, you've talked about um, EA Vore and the other one in Canada as well, and uh, the Chinese. Uh, geothermal is having its day. I mean, we're staring at, we're hearing from politicians about harnessing the power of waves, which everyone has been trying to do for years and years. I mean, three decades. It's not not really happening because economically it's not viable. But geothermal will have its day, and uh, the stability of supply um, makes that. You know, it's it's not like renewables. It's something you can partner with renewables to provide a backbone. I think it was a good issue. I think there's some other stories in there. I think the OPEC discussion is uh, is solid and it's something that you've you've followed really well, Harry. I think the size of some of these energy hub projects in Australia are getting insanely large. And I, I was really shocked to hear everybody just copying the press release on the uh, on Japan's going to invest more money in renewables when in fact what they meant is more money in nuclear. Um, I just think, yeah, we covered all of that this week. Uh, anybody who's not uh, got access to the subscription should get in touch with Simon, Simon at rethinkresearch.biz, and see if they can uh, get their hands on the issue. Thank you very much, and that's the end of the podcast.